Chapter fifty three of Adam Bede. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Shirley Ellen. Adam Bede by George Eliot. Chapter fifty three The Harvest Supper. As Adam was going homeward on Wednesday evening in the six o'clock sunlight, he saw in the distance the last load of barley winding its way towards the yard-gate of the Hall Farm, and heard the chant of Harvest Home rising and sinking like a wave. Fainter and fainter and more musical through the glowing distance, the falling dying sound still reached him as he neared the willow brook. The low westering sun shone right on the shoulders of the old Binton Hills, turning the unconscious sheep into bright spots of light, shone on the windows of the cottage, too, and made them aflame with a glory beyond that of amber or amethyst. It was enough to make Adam feel that he was in a great temple, and that the distant chant was a sacred song. "'It's wonderful,' he thought, "'how that sound goes to one's heart almost like a funeral bell.' for all it tells of the joyfulest time of year, and the time when men are mostly the thankfulest. I suppose it's a bit hard to us to think anything's over and gone in our lives, and there's a parting at the root of all our joys. It's like what I feel about Dinah. I should never have come to know and that her love would be the greatest of blessings to me, if what I counted a blessing hadn't been wrenched and torn away from me, and left me with a greater need so as I could crave and hunger for a greater and better comfort. He expected to see Dinah again this evening, and get leave to accompany her as far as Oakburn, and then he would ask her to fix some time when he might go to Snowfield, and learn whether the last best hope that had been born to him must be resigned like the rest. The work he had to do at home, besides putting on his best clothes, made it seven before he was on his way again to Hall Farm, and it was questionable whether, with his longest and quickest strides, he should be there in time even for the roast beef, which came after the plum pudding, for Mrs. Poyser's supper would be punctual. Great was the clatter of knives and pewter plates and tin cans when Adam entered the house. But there was no hum of voices to this accompaniment. The eating of excellent roast beef provided free of expense, was too serious a business to those good farm laborers to be performed with a divided attention, even if they had had anything to say to each other, which they had not. And Mr. Poyser, at the head of the table, was too busy with his carving to listen to Bartle Massey's or Mr. Craig's ready talk. "'Here, Adam,' said Mrs. Poyser, who was standing and looking on to see that Molly and Nancy did their duty as waiters. "'Here's a place kept for you between Mr. Massey and the boys. "'It's a poor tale you couldn't come to see the pudding when it was whole.' "'Adam looked anxiously round for a fourth woman's figure, but Dinah was not there. "'He was almost afraid of asking about her. "'Besides, his attention was claimed by greetings, "'and there remained the hope that Dinah was in the house, "'though perhaps disinclined to festivities on the eve of her departure.' It was a goodly sight, that table, with Martin Poyser's good round-humoured face and large person at the end of it helping the servants to the fragrant roast beef, and pleased when the empty plates came again. Martin, though usually blessed with a good appetite, really forgot to finish his own beef to-night. 
it was so pleasant to him to look on in the intervals of carving to see how the others enjoyed their supper for were they not men who on all the days of the year except christmas day and sundays ate their cold dinner in a makeshift manner under the hedgerows and drank their beer out of wooden bottles with relish certainly but with their mouths towards the zenith after a fashion more endurable to ducks than to human bipeds martin poyser had some faint conception of the flavours such men must find in hot roast beef and fresh drawn ale he held his head on one side and screwed up his mouth as he nudged bartle massey and watched the half-witted tom tholer otherwise known as tom saft receiving his second plateful of beef a grin of delight broke over tom's face as the plate was set down before him between his knife and fork which he held erect as if they had been sacred tapers but the delight was too strong to continue smouldering in a grin it burst out the next instant in a long-drawn ha ha followed by a sudden collapse into utter gravity as the knife and fork darted down on the prey martin poyser's large person shook with his silent innocuous laugh he turned towards mrs poyser to see if she too had been observant of tom and the eyes of husband and wife met in a glance of good-natured amusement tom saft was a great favourite on the farm where he played the part of the old jester and made up for his practical deficiencies by his success in repartee his hits i imagine were those of the flail which falls quite at random but nevertheless smashes an insect now and then they were much quoted at sheep shearing and haymaking times but i refrain from recording them here lest tom's wit should prove to be like that of many other bygone jesters eminent in their day rather of a temporary nature not dealing with the deeper and more lasting relations of things tom accepted martin poyser had some pride in his servants and laborers thinking with satisfaction that they were the best worth their pay of any set on the estate there was kester bale for example beale probably if the truth were known but he was called bale and was not conscious of any claim to a fifth letter the old man with the closed leather cap and the network of wrinkles on his sun-browned face was there any man in loamshire who knew better the nature of all farming work he was one of those invaluable laborers who can not only turn their hand to everything but excel in everything they turn their hand to it is true kester's knees were much bent outward by this time and he walked with a perpetual curtsey as if he were among the most reverent of men and so he was but i am obliged to admit that the object of his reverence was his worship he always thatched the ricks for if everything were his forte more than another it was thatching and when the last touch had been put to the last beehive rick kester whose home lay at some distance from the farm would take a walk to the rickyard in his best clothes on a sunday morning and stand in the lane at a due distance to contemplate his own thatching walking about to get each rick from the proper point of view as he curtsied along with his eyes upturned to the straw knobs imitative of golden globes at the summits of the beehive ricks which indeed were gold of the best sort you might have imagined him to be engaged in some pagan act of adoration kester was an old bachelor and reputed to have stockings full of coin concerning which his master cracked a joke with him every pay night not a new unseasoned joke but a good old one 
that had been tried many times before and had worn well. The young master's a merry man, Castor frequently remarked, for having begun his career by frightening away the crows under the last Martin Poyser but one, he could never cease to account the reigning Martin a young master. I am not ashamed of commemorating old Castor. You and I are indebted to the hard hands of such men, hands that have long ago mingled with the soil they tilled so faithfully, thriftfully making the best they could of the earth's fruits, and receiving the smallest share as their own wages. Then, at the end of the table, opposite his master, there was Alec, the shepherd and head man, with the ruddy face and broad shoulders, not on the best of terms with old Kester. Indeed, their intercourse was confined to an occasional snarl, for though they probably differed little concerning hedging and ditching and the treatment of ewes, there was a profound difference of opinion between them as to their own respective merits. When Titterus and Melibius happen to be on the same farm, they are not sentimentally polite to each other. Alec, indeed, was not by any means a honeyed man. His speech had usually something of a snarl in it, and his broad-shouldered aspect something of the bulldog expression, "'Don't you meddle with me, and I won't meddle with you.' But he was honest, even to the splitting of an oat-grain, rather than he would take beyond his acknowledged chair, and as close-fisted with his master's property as if it has been his own, throwing very small handfuls of damaged barley to the chickens, because a large handful affected his imagination painfully with a sense of profusion. Good-tempered Tim, the wagoner, who loved his horses, had his grudge against Alec in the matter of corn. They rarely spoke to each other, and never looked at each other, even over their dish of cold potatoes. But then, as this was their usual mode of behavior towards all mankind, it would be an unsafe conclusion that they had more than transient fits of unfriendliness. The bucolic character at Hayslope, you perceive, was not that entirely genial, merry, broad-grinning sort apparently observed in most districts visited by artists. The mild radiance of a smile was a rare sight on a field laborer's face, and there was seldom any gradation between bovine gravity and a laugh. Nor was every laborer so honest as our friend Alec. At this very table, among Mr. Poyser's men, there is that big Ben Tholloway, a very powerful thresher, but detected more than once in carrying away his master's corn in his pockets. An action which, as Ben was not a philosopher, could hardly be ascribed to absence of mind. However, his master had forgiven him and continued to employ him, for the Tholloways had lived on the common time out of mind, and had always worked for the Poysers. And on the whole, I dare say, society was not much the worse because Ben had not six months of it at the treadmill, for his views of depredation were narrow, and the house of correction might have enlarged them. As it was, Ben ate his roast beef tonight with a serene sense of having stolen nothing more than a few peas and beans of seed for his garden since the last harvest supper, and felt warranted in thinking that Alec's suspicious eye, forever upon him, was an injury to his innocence. But now the roast beef was finished and the cloth was drawn, leaving a fair large deal table for the bright drinking cans and the foaming brown jugs and the bright brass candlesticks pleasant to behold. Now the great ceremony of the evening was to begin, the harvest song, in which every man must join, 
He might be in tune if he liked to be singular, but he must not sit with closed lips. The movement was obliged to be in triple time. The rest was ad libitum. As to the origin of this song, whether it came in its actual state from the brain of a single rhapsodist, or was gradually perfected by a school or succession of rhapsodists, I am ignorant. There is a stamp of unity, of individual genius upon it, which inclines me to the former hypothesis, though I am not blind to the consideration that this unity may rather have arisen from that consensus of many minds, which was a condition of primitive thought, foreign to our modern consciousness. Some will perhaps think that they detect in the first quatrain an indication of a lost line, which later rhapsodists, failing an imaginative vigor, have supplied by the feeble device of iteration. Others, however, may rather maintain that this very iteration is an original felicity to which none but the most prosaic minds can be insensible. The ceremony connected with the song was a drinking ceremony. That is perhaps a painful fact, but then, you know, we cannot reform our forefathers. During the first and second quatrain, sung decidedly forte, no can was filled. Here's a health unto our master, the founder of the feast. Here's a health unto our master, and to our mistress. And may his doings prosper, whate'er he takes in hand, for we are all his servants, and are at his command. But now, immediately before the third quatrain, or chorus, sung fortissimo, with emphatic raps of the table which gave the effect of cymbals and drum together, Alec's can was filled and he was bound to empty it before the chorus ceased. Then drink, boys, drink, and see you do not spill, for if ye do, ye shall drink too, for tis our master's will. When Alec had gone successfully through this test of steady-handed manliness, it was the turn of old Kester at his right hand, and so on, till every man had drunk his initiatory pint under the stimulus of the chorus. Tom Saft, the rogue, took care to spill a little by accident. But Mrs. Poyser, too officiously, Tom thought, interfered to prevent the exaction of the penalty. To any listener outside the door it would have been the reverse of obvious why the drink, boys drink, should have such an immediately and often repeated encore. But once entered, he would have seen that all faces were at present sober, and most of them serious. It was the regular and respectable thing for those excellent farm laborers to do, as much as for elegant ladies and gentlemen to smirk and bow over their wine-glasses. Bartle Massey, whose ears were rather sensitive, had gone out to see what sort of evening it was at an early stage in the ceremony, and had not finished his contemplation until a silence of five minutes declared that, "'Drink, boys, drink!' was not likely to begin again for the next twelve-month. Much to the regret of the boys and Trotty, on them the stillness fell rather flat, after that glorious thumping of the table, towards which Trotty, seated on her father's knee, contributed with her small might and her small fist. When Bartle re-entered, however, there appeared to be a general desire for solo music after the choral. Nancy declared that Tim the Wagoner knew a song and was always singing like a lark in the stable. Whereupon Mr. Poyser said encouragingly, "'Come, Tim, lad, let's hear it.' Tim looks sheepish, 
tucked down his head, and said he couldn't sing. But this encouraging invitation of the master's was echoed all around the table. It was a conversational opportunity. Everybody could say, Come, Tim! except Alec, who never relaxed into the frivolity of unnecessary speech. At last Tim's next neighbor, Ben Tholoway, began to give emphasis to his speech by nudges, at which Tim, growing rather savage, said, "'Leave me alone, will ye? Else I'll sing a tune you in a like.' A good-tempered wagoner's patience has its limits, and Tim was not to be urged further. "'Well, then, David, you're the lad to sing,' said Ben." willing to show that he was not discomforted by this check. Sing, my love's a rose without a thorn. The amatory David was a young man of unconscious abstracted expression, which was due probably to a squint of superior intensity rather than to any mental characteristic, for he was not indifferent to Ben's invitation, but blushed and laughed and rubbed his sleeve over his mouth in a way that was regarded as a symptom of yielding and for some time the company appeared to be much in earnest about the desire to hear David's song. But in vain, the lyricism of the evening was in the cellar at present, and was not to be drawn from that retreat just yet. Meanwhile the conversation at the head of the table had taken a political turn. Mr. Craig was not above talking politics occasionally, though he piqued himself rather on a wise insight than on specific information. He saw so far beyond the mere facts of a case that really it was superfluous to know them. "'I'm no reader of the paper myself,' he observed to-night, as he filled his pipe. "'Though I might read it fast enough if I liked, for there's Miss Liddy has em, and is done with em in no time. But there's Mills now. Sits in the chimney-corner and reads the paper pretty nigh from morning to night. And when he's got to the end, Auntie's more addle-headed than he was at the beginning.' He's full of this peace now, as they talk on. He's been reading and reading, and thinks he's got to the bottom on it. Why, Lord bless you, Mills, says I. You see no more into this thing, nor you can see into the middle of a potato. I'll tell you what it is. You think it'll be a fine thing for the country. And I'm not agin it. Mark my words, I'm not agin it. But it's my opinion as there's them at the head of this country are as worse enemies to us nor Bonnie and all the monsoors he's got at his back. For as for the monsoors, you may skewer half a dozen of them at once as if they were frogs. Ay, ay, says Martin Poyser, listening with an air of much intelligence and edification. They ne'er ate a bit of beef in their lives, mostly salad, I reckon. And says I to Mills, continued Mr. Craig, Will you try to make me believe as furriners like them can do as half the harm that them ministers do with their bad government? If King George had turned em all away and governed by himself, he'd see everything righted. But I don't see myself what we'd want with anybody besides King and Parliament. It's that nest of ministers does the mischief, I tell you. Ah, that's fine talking, observed Mrs. Poyser, who was now seated near her husband with trotting on her lap. It's fine talking. It's hard work to tell which is old Harry when everybody's got boots on. As for this piece, said Mr. Poyser, turning his head on one side in a dubitative manner and giving a precautionary puff to his pipe between each sentence, I don't know. The war's a fine thing for the country, and how you keep up prices without it. 
and them French are a wicked sort of folks by what I can make out. What can you do better nor fight em? You're partly right there, Poyser, said Mr. Craig, but I'm not again the peace to make it a holiday for a bit. We can break it when we like, and I'm in no fear of Boney for all they talk so much of his cleverness. That's what I says to Mills this morning. Lord bless you. He sees no more through Boney. Why, I put him up to more in three minutes than he'd get from the paper all the year round. Says I, am I a gardener as knows his business, or ain't I, Mills? Answer me that. To be sure you are, Craig, says he. He's not a bad fellow, Mills isn't, for a butler. But weak in the head. Well, says I, you talk of Boney's cleverness. Would it be any use my being a first-rate gardener if I'd not but a quagmire to work on? No, says he. Well, I says, that's just what it is with Boney. I'll not deny, but he may be a bit clever. He's no Frenchman born, as I understand. But what's he got at his back but Monsieur's? Mr. Craig paused a moment with an emphatic stare after this triumphant specimen of Socratic argument. And then he added, thumping the table rather fiercely, Why, it's a sure thing, and there's them'll bear witness to it. As in one regiment where there was a man a-missing, they put the regimentals on a big monkey, and they fit him as a shell fits a walnut, and you couldn't tell the monkey from the monseers. Ah, think of that now, said Mr. Poyser, impressed at once with the political bearings of the fact, and its striking interest as an anecdote in natural history. Come, Craig, said Adam, that's a little too strong. You don't believe that. It's all nonsense about the French being such poor sticks. Mr. Irwine's seen em in their own country, and he says they've plenty of fine fellows among em. And as for knowledge and contrivances and manufacture, there's a many things we're a fine sight behind em in. It's poor foolishness to run down your enemies. Why, Nelson and the rest of em would have no merit in beating em if they were such awful as folks pretend. Mr. Poyser looked doubtfully at Mr. Craig, puzzled by this opposition of authorities. Mr. Irwine's testimony was not to be disputed, but on the other hand, Craig was a knowing fellow, and his view was less startling. Martin had ever heard tell of the French being good for much. Mr. Craig had found no answer but such was implied in taking a long draught of ale and then looking down fixedly at the proportion of his own leg, which he turned a little outward for that purpose. When Bartle Massey returned from the fireplace where he had been smoking his first pipe in quiet, and broke the silence by saying, as he thrust his forefinger into the canister, Why, Adam, how happened you not to be at church on Sunday? Answer me that, you rascal. The anthem went limping without you. Are you going to disgrace your schoolmaster in his old age? No, Mr. Massey, said Adam. Mr. and Mrs. Poyser can tell you where I was. I was in no bad company. She's gone, Adam. Gone to Snowfield, said Mr. Poyser, reminded of Dinah for the first time this evening. I thought you would have persuaded her better. Not at Holder, but she must go yesterday forenoon. The missus hardly got over it. I thought she'd had no spirit for the harvest supper. Mrs. Poyser had thought of Dinah several times since Adam had come in but she had no heart to mention the bad news. "'What?' said Bartle, with an air of disgust. "'There was a woman concerned?' "'Then I give you up, Adam.' 
"'But it's a woman you'd spoken well on, Bartle,' said Mr. Poyser. "'Come now. You cannot draw back. You said once as woman wouldna have been a bad invention if they'd all been like Dinah.' "'I meant her voice, man. I meant her voice. That was all,' said Bartle. "'I can bear to hear her speak without wanting to put wool in my ears. "'As for other things, I dare say she's like the rest of the women. "'Thinks two and two'll come to make five if she cries and bothers enough about it.' "'Aye, aye,' said Mrs. Poyser. "'One would think and hear some folks talk as the men were cute enough "'to count the corns in a bag of wheat with only smelling at it. "'They can see through a barn door, they can.' Perhaps that's the reason they can see so little of this side of it. Martin Poyser shook with delighted laughter and winked at Adam, as much as to say the schoolmaster was in for it now. Ah, said Bartle sneeringly, the women are quick enough. They are quick enough. They know the rights of a story before they hear it. They can tell a man what their thoughts are before he knows them himself. Like enough, said Mrs. Poyser, for the men are mostly so slow that their thoughts overrun them and they can only catch him by the tail. I can count a stocking top while a man's getting his tongue ready, and when he outs with his speech at last, there's little broth to be made on it. It's your dead chicks take the longest in hatching. However, I'm not denying the women are foolish. God Almighty made em to match the men. Match, said Bartle. Aye, as vinegar matches one's teeth. If a man says a word, his wife will match it with a contradiction. If he's a mind for hot meat, his wife will match it with cold bacon. If he laughs, she'll match him with a whimpering. She's such a match as the horse flies to the horse. She's got the right venom to sting him with, the right venom to sting him with. Yes, said Mrs. Poyser. I know what the man like. A poor soft as it simper at him like the picture of the sun, whether they did right or wrong and say thank you for a kick, and pretend she didn't know which end stood uppermost, till her husband told her. That's what a man wants in a wife, mostly. He wants to make sure one fool tell him he's wise. But there's some men can do without that. They think so much of themselves already. And that's how it is there's old bachelors. Come, Craig, said Mr. Poyser jocosely. You mun get married pretty quick, else you'll be set down for an old bachelor. "'and you see what the women'll think on you.' "'Well,' said Mr. Craig, "'willing to conciliate Mrs. Poyser "'and setting a high value on his own compliments, "'I like a cleverish woman, "'a woman of spirit, a managing woman.' "'You're out there, Craig,' said Bartle dryly. "'You're out there. "'You judge your garden stuff on a better plan than that. "'You pick the things for what they can excel in, "'for what they can excel in. You don't value your peas for their roots, or your carrots for their flowers. Now that's the way you should choose women. Their cleverness'll never come to much. Never come to much. But they make excellent simpletons, ripe and strong-flavored. What does say to that? said Mr. Poyser, throwing himself back and looking merrily at his wife. Say, answers Mrs. Poyser, with a dangerous fire kindling in her eye. Why, I say as some folks' tongues are like the clocks, is run on striking, not to tell you the time of day, but because there's somewhat wrong with her inside. Mrs. Poyser would probably have brought her rejoinder to a further climax, if everyone's attention had not at this moment been called to the other end of the table, where the lyricism, which had at first only manifested itself by David's sotto voice performance of My Love's a Rose Without a Thorn, 
had gradually assumed a rather deafening and complex character. Tim, thinking slightly of David's vocalization, was impelled to supersede that feeble buzz by a spirited commencement of three merry mowers. But David was not to be put down so easily, and showed himself capable of a copious crescendo, which was rendering it doubtful whether the rose would not predominate over the mowers, when old Castor, with an entirely unmoved and immovable aspect, suddenly set up a quavering treble, as if he'd been in alarm and the time had come for him to go off. The company at Alec's end of the table took this form of vocal entertainment very much as a matter of course, being free from musical prejudices, but Bartle Massey laid down his pipe and put his fingers in his ears, and Adam, who'd been longing to go ever since he had heard Dinah was not in the house, rose and said he must bid good night. "'I'll go with you, lad,' said Bartle. "'I'll go with you before my ears are split.' "'I'll go round by the common and see you home, if you like, Mr. Massey,' said Adam. "'Aye, aye,' said Bartle. "'Then we can have a bit of a talk together. "'I never get hold of you now.' "'Eh, it's a pity, but you'd sit it out,' said Martin Poyser. "'They'll all go soon, for the missus never lets them stay past ten. "'But Adam was resolute. "'So the good-nights were said, "'and the two friends turned out on their starlight walk together.' "'There's that poor fool vixen whimpering for me at home,' said Bartle. "'I can never bring her here with me for fear she should be struck with Mrs. Poyser's eye, "'and the poor bitch might go limping for ever after.' "'I've never any need to drive Jib back,' said Adam, laughing. "'He always turns back of his own head when he finds out I'm coming here.' "'Aye, aye,' said Bartle. "'A terrible woman, made of needles, made of needles. "'But I stick to Martin. I shall always stick to Martin.' and he likes the needles. God help him! He's a cushion made on purpose for him. But she's a downright good-natured woman for all that, said Adam, and as true as the daylight. She's a bit cross with the dogs when they offer to come in the house, but if they depended on her, she'd take care and have them well fed. If her tongue's keen, her heart's tender. I've seen that in times of trouble. She's one of those women as are better than their word. Well, well, said Bartle. I don't say the apple isn't sound at the core, but it sets my teeth on edge. It sets my teeth on edge. End of chapter 53